you turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, where we will be continuing our study and uh, series of sermons on the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. What, what a fantastically dramatic, engaging, and gripping Christian life uh, the Apostle Paul lived before us, and it's given to us so uh, meticulously by the recordings of the gospel writer Luke here in Acts. And so we'll pick up in chapter 22. But as you're turning and, and you're holding your place there, I want to read a passage of Scripture out of Matthew chapter 10. Uh, in the teachings of Christ as he had his disciples gathered around him. Now, the Apostle Paul wasn't a disciple at this time. He didn't hear this directly from the lips of God's Son, but I'm sure that he was drilled over and over by those seasoned original disciples, Peter and James and John, Andrew, the likes, as they shared with him these words out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, where Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in synagogues, and you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And I think Paul found those words, even though he didn't hear them directly from Christ, but he certainly was made aware of them by the original 11 disciples. I believe those words meant probably as much for the Apostle Paul as they did for any of Jesus' followers, because as we have been watching the Apostle Paul when we were left off in chapter 21, you know that Paul found himself in the grips of an angry fanatical mob because of false accusations that had been brought against the Apostle Paul because as there he was in Jerusalem trying to do the right thing to try to win favor with the Jewish people that he might be able to share the gospel, that he might present a good case for the gospel of Christ to those his brethren, the Jewish brethren. But lo and behold, there were a number, a delegation, if you will, of Jews from Asia Minor who knew Paul, who resented Paul, who hated Paul, and so when you resent somebody and you hate somebody, you're tempted to spread false things about them. And so they were spreading rumors about the Apostle Paul, that he was there to defame Judaism, that he was there to desecrate the, the holy temple. And so with that, there was an uproar there in the temple complex, as you may, may well remember. And Paul found himself being beaten by this angry mob. And uh, and then that necessitated the Roman soldiers to come down off the cliffs from Rome, uh, the Roman fortress there at San Antonio. And there they, they rushed in many, many soldiers to squash this great riot. And it was all around this one little humble Jewish fellow named Paul. And so Paul not only found himself being beaten by his countrymen, but being arrested. And turns out his arrest was actually for his protection because the crowd had one intention in mind, and that was to kill him. So actually the Roman soldiers were saving Paul's life. And it was so bad that we're told in, in, in Acts chapter 21 that, that the people were clutching and clawing and they were just breathing anger and, and, and vengeance. And they were trying to get their hands, even as the soldiers had Paul in their Custody. So much so that the soldiers were carrying the Apostle Paul uh, just to keep him away. It's like trying to keep a piece of meat from uh, hungry dogs. And finally they get him to the steps of the fort 
Antonio, which is there at the outskirts of the city. And, and so Paul speaks to the Roman commander. And when he speaks to the Roman commander, you may recall he was speaking in Greek. This got the attention of the Roman commander and said, wait a minute, I thought you were one of those ruffians. In fact, I thought you were one of those Egyptian terrorists. And that's why, you know, I thought you were. And here you are speaking in the cultural refined language of Greek. You're not, you're not a ruffian. You're not a local. You're not a troublemaker. And Paul says, no, says, I grew, I grew up in Tarsus, a, a refined city, a nice city, a cultural center. But I like to speak to my people. Now that takes courage. Here people want to kill you. They're out for your blood. And Paul says, could I, before you put me in, in jail, could I just address the crowd? And the commander gives them that wish. And so Paul's standing on the steps and we're told at the end of chapter 21 that he's standing there and he motions with his hands to the people and he began to speak to them in Hebrew, which is their dialect. Actually, it's in Aramaic. The Jews spoke in that um, uh, language. And so we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 22. And what I want you to see is as Paul is standing there, this great man of God, this great spirit-filled, dynamic leader in the early church movement was not going to waste not a single moment by which he could speak to those who needed Christ. And believe you me, Paul loved the Jews, his fellow countrymen. He loved them dearly. He wanted nothing more than to see them come to accept Christ as he had known Christ. So what we see in the beginning verses of chapter 22 is Paul's defense before the mob. He wants to clear the air about these false charges uh, that makes him look like he's anti-Jewish. And so let's read in verses 20, uh, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. Through five men, brethren, and fathers, you'll notice the conciliatory language that Paul's using. He's reaching out to them as this, if to say, "Hey, I'm one of you. My fathers, my my former leaders, my brothers in the faith." He says, "Hear my defense before you now." And when they heard that he spoke to them in Hebrew or Aramaic language, they kept all the more silent. Then he says, "I am indeed a Jew." Born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring and change even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. First of all, you see Paul in his defense, humbly highlighting his impeccable background. He says, I'm not anti-Jewish. He says, I'm a Jew of Jews. Consider the fact that I was born in the city of Tarsus to Jewish parents. He says, I, I you know, was a part of the diaspora where Jews were scattered out from Jerusalem. But he said, nonetheless, I was born to Jewish parents. And so he says, I've got Jewish roots. And, and he says, you know, not only that, but I was brought up here in the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. I, my early years were spent being trained in the faith right here in Jerusalem. Not only did I have thorough Jewish upbringing, but Paul goes on to share that he, had, he was prominently trained in rabbinical teachings. In fact, if you hold your place there, let me just read a portion of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, because Paul was on the subject of those who boast. 
And Paul was talking about himself, and he wasn't boasting, but he says, if anybody had the right to boast, I sure could. Listen to what he said in Philippians in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He said, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day, just as the law required, of the stock of Israel, being a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, the very tribe that, that Israel's first king Saul came from, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, the keepers of the law, the experts of the law. I was one of the Pharisees concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul said, look, don't question my Jewish credentials. He says, I, I have a, a, a thorough Jewish upbringing. I've had the best of the rabbinical training. He says, he points out here back in chapter 22. He says, I sat in the teaching of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was probably one of the most revered rabbis in, in all of Israel. Teaching in the school of Hillel. And everybody you know, knew that that was premier school teaching for young you know, students of the law. And Paul sat under him. We'll find out in chapter 23, verse 6, where Paul goes on to say, Not only am I a Pharisee, but he says, I am the son of a Pharisee. It's in my blood. Come from a long line. I'll... Maybe a translation would be for those of you that, like myself, are Star Wars fans. It's like Luke Skywalker being born son of a Jedi. So Luke is saying, look, I'm a Pharisee, but my dad's a Pharisee. I mean, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so you'll notice, however, in Paul's testimony, which is verses 1 through 21, he only gives a small portion of, the, of his time given credit to himself. The majority of his testimony is given glory to God, revealing God's activity in transforming his life. So Paul's given briefly his credentials that makes him a, a, a Jew to be respected and revered, but he's also wanting them to see that, no, I'm not the person that I am that you see before you because of my credentials, because of my being a, a Jew and being trained in rabbinical law and being a Pharisee of Pharisees. He says, no, that, that, that's not what has made the difference in my life. Here's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. And we pick up in verse 6. He said, now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. And that's important because Paul wants you to understand that what's going to happen to him is really significant. He says, suddenly a great light from heaven shone all around me. Listen, at noon, you don't notice flashlights and, and light sources and things like that because of the brightness of the sun. But Paul was pointing out the contrast. He says, even at noon, there was such a blinding light. That it caught my attention, that it struck me down. He says, and, and this light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground, verse 7, and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now this will sound familiar to you because back in chapter 9, we had Luke's summary of Paul's conversion experience. But now you're hearing Paul, word by word, tell it from his own lips here in chapter 22. So let's pick up in verse 8. So I answered. Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of the light, 
Then led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law. Now, mind you, Paul is speaking to a Jewish crowd. And he's casting not only himself in a favorable light, but he's also pointing out that even Ananias, the very one that came to him, that God sent to him to reassure him and to affirm him, was one who was a devout Jew too. But a Christian. And so he was one that was, had good testimony with the Jews in verse 12, who dwelt there. He came to me in verse 13 and he spoke and said to me, Brother Saul, which was a good Jewish greeting, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, the God of our fathers, a good Jewish expression, has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one, speaking of Christ, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his, his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Then it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, and this was after Paul had gone out into the Arabian desert for a few years and, and, and spent time alone with the Lord and in the Word and got thoroughly, uh, you know, uh, indoctrinated to the Christian faith, if you will. But then he made the trip back to Jerusalem, as you may recall in earlier chapters in the book of Acts. But something that Paul tells us now in his testimony, Luke doesn't enlighten us to earlier in the book of Acts. Paul had a vision while he was in Jerusalem. He'll share that in verse 17. Then it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. In other words, I was just caught up in the spirit, if you will. And I saw him, speaking of Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive you, your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death, and got in the clothes of those who were killing him. So Paul was saying, you know, kind of in an argument with the Lord, I wouldn't suggest you do that if you're in a trance and God speaks to you through a vision. But Paul was just pointing out to the Lord Jesus, saying, but wait a minute, Lord, don't you, these people, surely they will accept my testimony, surely they'll accept what I have to say, because they know how zealous I was as a Jew. Surely they'll trust me. But then in verse 21, Jesus said to him, then he, then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to understand that Paul is making a clear point here for these verses. For three quarters of his testimony, he's saying, Brothers, fathers, fellow Jews, something radical happened to me. You know my background. You know my family. You know my training. You know my service in the Sanhedrin and my service as a Pharisee. You know the zeal with which I conducted myself as a follower of the law. You know me. I'm standing before you, but I'm not the same man that I was before. And he's pointing to God for the majority of his testimony. He's saying, listen, it was that encounter on the road to Damascus. 
It wasn't because of my training. It wasn't because of my accomplishments. It wasn't even because of my Jewish background. He says, it's because I've encountered the resurrected Messiah. The very Messiah that we've been praying for. The very Messiah that we've been longing for and yearning for. I have encountered Him in a miraculous way. And I've been gloriously transformed. Give Him the glory. Give Him the glory. What a testimony. What a testimony. And you know, like the Apostle Paul, as Christians, we have to resist the temptation to rob God. You say, oh no, he's going to preach about tithing. No, I'm not. Not that kind of robbing. We have to resist the temptation of robbing God of glory. Ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you today to tell you that we have nothing We have nothing of eternal significance apart from the providential activity of God Almighty, the Creator and Sustainer and Savior and Lord. We have nothing by which we could glorify ourselves. The only purpose and the only reason and the only uh, justification that we have for glory is what we owe to God. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 31. He says, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. If anybody wants to say something good about you and the qualities that exist in you as a Christian, and they notice how kind you are and patient you are, and how much joy and peace you have in your life, and, and how much zeal you have for sharing you know, with others and, and being a, a, a good citizen, listen, don't point to yourself. Don't sit back and say, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am a pretty good person. You know, as a matter of fact, yeah, I do. I went to this school. I got educated. My parents are so and so. No! Listen, do like Paul. Tell them, no, don't look at me. Don't point to me. It's God that's made the difference with me. It's God who's made the difference in my life. I'm the person that I am today because of the activity of God in my life. I've had a wonderful, glorious, transforming encounter with the living Savior of the universe. If there's anything good in me, It's all about Christ. Amen? Do others see Jesus in you? Do they understand that you are the person that you are because of who is abiding in your heart? As I was preparing the message and I was listening to some music in the background, it was together for the gospel men's chorus singing together. And they were singing, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, my whole life is Christ. That's the testimony of a born-again believer in Jesus Christ who's been washed in the blood of Christ. That was Paul's, that was Paul's testimony. That was his defense before the mob. And you know what? The amazing thing, even though he talked about encountering Jesus in the resurrected form and Jesus had called him to go out to all men, even though he was making reference to Christ being resurrected, the crowd was hushed. Every eye focused on him. Every ear tuned into him. He was on a roll. He was on a roll with his testimony all the way up to verse 21. And when Paul shared how the Lord Jesus had told him, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if it really works, but I've always heard that if you wave a red flag or cloth in front of a bull, he'll charge you, get crazy, goes raging or whatever. Uh, you know, I was tempted to try that when I was on the farm, but you know, 
God's merciful, right? <laughs> so, but, but for a Jew to speak favorably of Gentiles is like waving the proverbial red flag in the eyes of the Jews. That's all it took. Because Paul was insinuating by Jesus' directive that he would go to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles would be equal with the Jews. Man, was that ever rubbing salt in the wound that day? How do we know that? Because verse 22 is there. And I want you to see now how things change so radically in just a moment. And they listened to him until this word. What word? The Gentiles. <laughs> and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. In other words, kill him. It's almost like the topography or the layout of a hurricane. You know, they say the hurricane has an eye. You, you know, if you endure the first part of the hurricane, you know, and, and, and you make it to, to where the eye comes over where you live, things calm down. Sky sometimes gets blue and, and no wind. Everything calms down. People think, oh, yeah, we're through. Quick, let's start rearranging the deck. Let's start pulling up tree limbs and things. But then, you see, all that's happening is the rest of the hurricane's coming. And most times it's the worst part. So, Paul was just in the eye of the storm during his testimony. Because as soon as he said, Gentile, here comes the hurricane of, of, of angry, vicious mob again. And they are screaming, kill him, kill him, kill him. Now, the Roman commander is on hand. And he hears all this and he watches in verse 23. It says, then as they cried out and tore off their rope, their clothes, and threw dust in the air. This is just a visible, uh, a tangible way of expressing their absolute grief over the blasphemy of such a thought that the Gentiles would be equal to Abraham's descendants. Oh, they were so angry. They were so upset. They were just tearing their clothes and yelling and screaming and throwing dust up in the air. Kind of like a Baptist church meeting. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite. I want you to notice that Paul gives his own defense now. He, he, Paul, not his defense before the Jewish mob, but now Paul's going to be moved into a different arena and he'll be offering a different defense. And I want you to see that beginning there in verse 24. Then the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul says, uh, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care of what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. And the commander answered, With a large sum of money, or a large sum, I obtained this citizenship, his, his citizenship. And Paul said, But... I was born a citizen. Verse 29. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him and the commander who uh, was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Why is everything changing? Now, let me tell you something. The Roman commander had brutal intentions. And now understand, the Roman commander, is he's very frustrated. He's got a riot on his hands. He's got people that are screaming to kill somebody. Here's this little runt of a Jew that everybody wants to get their hands on. And he can't, well, he's not the Egyptian terrorist. He's not such a bad fella. He preached a good message just a while ago. Seems like everything's, why are they so mad at him? Why is he such a troublemaker? He says, well, only thing I know to do, if I can get the truth, I just might as well scourge him. That was a typical way of punishing people 
It was an awful way of punishment. It was probably one of the most extreme ways. But it was a way of torturing prisoners to get a testimony or, or to get confession. So he said, strap him down. We'll, we'll scourge him. And ladies and gentlemen, when, when, when the Romans chose to use what they call the, the flagellum, which is a special whip, a wooden handle with leather thongs. I think they sometimes call it the cat of nine tails. These leather thongs were embedded with pieces of nails and metal and pottery, anything that would tear up something. And then they would strap the prisoner down. And of course you saw this so graphically in Jesus. When he was just before he was crucified, Pilate hit him scourged. He's tied to a post. He's stretched out to be more vulnerable to the whipping. And, and when the Roman soldier wraps those thongs around you and pulls them back, it not only tears the skin, but it rips through the ligaments and to the muscle, even down to the bones. In some cases, they said even internal organs would hang out as a result of this horrible beating. So the commander saying, I'll scourge him. We'll get the truth out of this runt. Let's, let's strap him down. So here's Paul. Now, I want you to notice something. As they're prepared to do this horrible, horrific method of torture, Paul, he, he knows all about, uh, he knows all about scourgings. In fact, you know what? He may have, he may have even witnessed Jesus being scourged as a Pharisee, as a Jew. He may have been one of the ones that was screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Who knows? But whether he saw Christ or not, Paul knew what a scourging was. And he uses the wisdom of God. He exercises the wisdom of God at a very crucial time. And I want you to understand that because Jesus has said, as I, sh- I shared with him, Matthew chapter 10, listen, as Christians, I'm talking about true Christians. I'm talking about real born-again followers of Jesus Christ who believe with all their heart that every word of this word of God is absolutely true. And whose heart and soul and spirit convicts them no matter what the circumstances, no matter who the audience is, you preach, teach, share the word as absolutely true. And Jesus knew that for those sincere, genuine followers in a pagan world, you're going to come under a lot of scrutiny. You're going to come under a lot of pressure. You're going to come under ostracism. You may even face persecution to back off of the teachings of the word of God. And that's why Jesus warned His disciples. Be ready, followers. Be ready. This world that you're, I'm launching you out into. What did Jesus say back then in Matthew chapter 10? He says, I send you out as, as lambs in the midst of wolves. But He said, be shrewd as serpents. Be, what did He say? Be, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Use wisdom. And that's exactly what Paul does. And what amazes me in these verses that we see there, verse 25 particularly, there's Paul. He's stretched out, tied, probably stripped down to nothing. Here's this big burly Roman soldier with this cat of nine tails whip ready to tear into his meat. Now, I guess Charlie Martin would have been screaming, help me, please. Or, you know, maybe just so angry at the injustice, screaming, hurling insults and and, 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 and cursing him and things like that. But Paul's so cool. Coolly and calmly, as as, as the way I read it, Paul simply asks a question. He says, "Uh, excuse me, 
Mr. Roman soldier about to tear my meat off my bones. Excuse me. It's, it, just, just, just wondering. You ever watch Columbo? You know, he was, he was a, he was a pro at asking these questions in such a casual way. Uh, see, I, uh, uh, excuse me, excuse me. I, I don't want to bother you, but yeah. <laughs> Paul says, excuse me, excuse me, is it lawful that you would beat a Roman citizen, that you would scourge a man who is a Roman and, not only Roman, but really is uncondemned? Well, that got the commanders, or got the soldiers' attention. And you'll notice all the way through the text, they're backing off of him like he was a super-powered skunk. Why? Because Paul knew he's asking a rhetorical question. Not to get the Stephens beat out of him, but he's calm enough because he's got the Spirit of Christ that gives him wisdom to say, ask the question, ask the question. And waits at the right moment, he asks the question, is it lawful that you, a Roman soldier, would beat a fellow Roman citizen who is uncondemned? And he goes, hold it, hold that thought. Because Paul knew the answer. The soldier knew the answer. He goes to the commander who really knew the answer. You see, Dr. F.F. F. Bruce in the New International Commentary points out, quote, Roman citizens were exempt from the cruel beatings according to the Valerian and Porcian laws. Had Lysias, the commander, proceeded to scourge Paul, he could have lost not only his military career, but he could have lost his life. Roman soldiers were drilled, 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 in their training, you don't scourge a Roman citizen. They're exempt. And so when the commander came in and said, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, oh yeah, yeah I am. He said, you know what, I'm a citizen, but it cost me a lot of money. And historians tell us that in the Roman Empire, during the reign of Emperor Claudius, that in order to kind of pad the treasury... They were selling Roman citizenship to non-Romans. And obviously this Roman commander had bought his. It cost him a lot, but he bought it. And he sure wasn't about to sacrifice it over this runt Jew. He says, hey, he says, I, I sacrificed. I bought my, my, my citizenship. Paul said, I was born a Jew, which was really premier. Mr. Roman commander, you're second class Roman citizen. I was born a Jew. Get these ropes off of me right now. Okay, so they released him. You see the picture. Look, exercising the wisdom of God and maintaining the, the calm that God gives you by the presence of His Spirit. And Paul was saved from probably the most horrible beating that a person could endure at that time. You know, there's a lesson in this. Because as I mentioned, if you stand for Christ and you truly stand on the Word of God, particularly in a culture like ours where it's so anti-Christian and, and uh, anti-Bible and, and anti-Biblical principles, listen, there, there are going to be times, you may not be threatened to be scourged, but there will be times, when, you know, in the face of schoolmates or co-workers or uh, a, a supervisor or somebody that has authority over you, you may be facing some really, uh, a lot of heat. To compromise on your convictions, to back off of the Word of God. And I encourage you to use the wisdom. That's why Jesus was telling His disciples all the way back in Matthew chapter 10 that I shared with you. He says, you know, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise. As serpents and harmless as doves. You don't need to go out there and be, you know, in everybody's face, but be, be you know, innocent and harmless as doves, but be wise. 
But he goes on in verse 19 and says, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. Guess who was telling Paul what to say? The Holy Spirit. Telling Paul exactly what to say. Listen, Christians today in the heat of controversy, in the heat of pressure, ostracism, and possible persecution, we need to be wise. Amen? Could I get an amen there? It just bothers me, ladies and gentlemen, to see Christians acting stupid out there. I know Baptists aren't supposed to say that, but I'm sorry. That's being ignorant. God gives us godly wisdom to exercise in the face of adversity and opposition. Be wise! And if you say, well, but, but I'm just not wise. You know, guess what? James in chapter 1 verse 5 says you can pray for wisdom. Have you ever prayed for wisdom? I do about every day. Excuse me. James says if any of you lacks wisdom, he says, ask it of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given unto you when you find yourself in under the heat of pressure to compromise or to cave in on your convictions. Listen, simply call out to God and say, Lord, I, this is a tough situation. This is a perplexing situation here. I need wisdom. Oh God, please give me wisdom. The older I get, I find myself praying that prayer a whole lot more. And if I, you know how hindsight's twenty twenty. As I look back in my younger years, I sure wished I'd have learned that prayer because I made a lot of unwise decisions. And I, I, I just encourage young people today, pray the prayer for God's wisdom. Pray for God's wisdom. Every day you get up, you listen, whether you realize it or not, you need the wisdom of God. And He's liberal to give it to you. He gave it to Paul. Listen, Paul used the wisdom of God not just to save his neck. It probably did save him. You know, because these scourges can, can be deadly. But not only that, more importantly, it saved him to continue on in his ministry. I got news for you. Jesus had plans for Paul. And that's why he was giving God the wisdom to preserve his ministry that he might move forward. Well, as we move forward, I want to bring your attention now to the end of chapter 22, verse 30. It says, the next day, because he wanted, speaking to the Roman commander... Says so the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews. See, the Roman commander still scratching his head. Why does everybody hate this guy so badly? Why is he such a criminal and he's so innocent looking? He said, and so he re- he released him from his bonds and he commanded the chief priest and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So he says, I tell you what I'll do. I can't scourge him. <laughs> And, you know, and, and I'll just bring the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, and I'll put Paul in front of them and let them interrogate him. I'll get to the bottom of this. And so we see Paul's defense before the Jewish council now. You know, it's worth noting that when the Sanhedrin comes to the fort to meet with the Roman commander and to quiz Paul, this is the fifth But more importantly, this is the final time. This is it. This is the last straw. This is the fifth, and it's the final time that the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, will have presented to them the truth of the gospel. And tragically, they will reject it. Which is eternally tragic for them, but consider the ramifications they were speaking for Israel. This was the official rejection of the nation of Israel 
to the offering of the Lamb of God. And this would be it. They would have no other opportunities in a formal setting to repent and lead the nation to Christ. You know, it's a dark day in the, in the nation when its leaders reject the Son of God. I wonder if that's happening in Washington, D.C., in the beltway of our own nation today. I wonder as our Supreme Court meets and deliberates on key principles of matter of faith. I wonder as our Congress gathers together to meet. I wonder as our President and Vice President sit in the Oval Office and have opportunity to see through the wisdom of God that they're running diametrically opposed to the teachings of the Word of God. I wonder if the United States of America, because of its leadership, is gradually turning its face on God. How many other opportunities will a nation have to come before the Lord corporately and to, to be broken in sin and to cry out to holy and just and all-powerful God and repent of our sins and turn back to God before it's eternally too late? I hope that final time hasn't come. I went to the state prayer conference down at Fayetteville Sister Wendy and I went down there. We heard a powerful proclaim of the Word of God. Richard Owen Roberts, he's in his 80s, but preaches like a dynamo. And his little short, bent over frame, I thought, well, somebody needs to go up there and hold that brother up. But he got up there and preached like made me embarrassed. But he said something that, that stuck in my mind and I, I don't think I'll ever forget. He says, when it comes to our nation, the United States of America... It's not too late. But then he looked at us with those steely eyes as if he was looking at each one of us. But he says, but it is getting very late. When the Sanhedrin gathered there before God's apostle, let me tell you something, it wasn't too late, but it was getting very late. By the close of that session, it was too late. The next thing they would know would be the, the hand of God's judgment and the Roman soldiers who would dismantle the city of Jerusalem and tear down the Roman temple, I mean the Jewish temple and execute and massacre Jewish citizens, men, women, children by the hundreds of thousands. It was too late. Here's Paul. He's given his defense before the Jewish council. And, and look in verse 1 of chapter 23. Paul, looking earnestly, in other words, fixing his attention, fixing his eyes on the council. He said, men and brethren. See, still, he's not yelling at them. He's not accusing them. He said, men and brethren, I have lived in, good, in all good conscience before God until this day. Now notice verse 2. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Or strike him on the mouth. And that word in the Greek, the verb, verb strike, isn't, isn't it just a polite slap across the mouth, like when your child says something in Sunday school they shouldn't say. But, but this, this is the, the verb that says, like a sucker punch. Pow! So just imagine Paul standing there, his lips swelling up, blood dripping down his chin. I mean, and, and notice Paul's response to having been sucker punched in the mouth by the Jewish council. Then Paul said to him, the, the high priest, he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? In other words, he's not condemned yet. 
He's not, he's not been, you know, uh, found guilty of anything. And yet you command to strike. Now, it's interesting. Verse 4. I want you to see this. And, and those who stood by him said, do you, do you revile God's high priest? Some people say, as we look at Paul's response, look at verse 5. Then Paul says, oh, I, I did not know, brethren, that he was a high priest. For it is written, and Paul quotes right out of Exodus 22-28. Paul quotes uh, right what it says. You shall not speak evil of the rule of your people. Can I, can I offer a suggestion? And this is backed up in some of the conservative commentaries that I study. Some people say, well, Paul didn't know it was a high priest because his vision was bad. I don't think that's quite right because he knew who was speaking. He knew he was in front of the Sanhedrin. He recognized the voice of the high priest. So, so Paul said these terrible derogatory things towards the high priest. It was a, a violation of the law. I believe we saw Paul in his humanity. So let me ask any of you. I know Paul had been taught, just as Jesus says, you know, you, shall, you don't hate your enemies in, in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says you don't hate and revile your enemies. Those who revile you, he says you love your enemies. But I think we saw the flesh in Paul creep in. Now, any of you that say, oh, I wouldn't have done that. No, 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 no. If the high priest had said something like that to me and hit somebody, popped me in the mouth like that, I probably would have not, you know, I just said, that's okay, priest. Come on down here. Let me circle punch you in the mouth and see how you talk back to... No, Paul, I think what we see, let's just be honest. The Scripture's honest. God doesn't gloss over. I think Paul, in a moment, he was shocked. He was in pain. And, he's, and he, he said to the, to the high priest what Jesus has already said to the Pharisees. You remember back in Matthew's Gospel, he saw the Pharisees and he said, Well, wonder you, you bunch of hypocrites. You're nothing but whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're stinking dead on the inside. Jesus didn't mention the words. So Paul was basically using some terminology that Jesus had already used against them. But I believe Paul's reaction and recovery is a valuable lesson for us too. Ladies and gentlemen, when we have moments where the flesh breaks through, we do things that aren't right. I think Paul realized right away that what it said was not right because he goes right into quoting what the Bible says. He shouldn't have reviled the high priest because it's against the law. But then as we read on to verse 6, we'll be going down to verse 10 and closing. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes who were of the Pharisees party uh, of the Pharisees party arose and protested, saying, "We find no evil in this man." Talking about Paul, but in but if a spirit or an angel spoke has spoken to him, let let us not fight against him. And, and when there arose a great dissension, the commander, he's probably going, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> there they go again. See, Paul, again, God gave Paul wisdom. He knew exactly. Paul read the Sanhedrin. He said, hmm, I'm in a pickle here. I, I, the focus, the spotlight's on me. They're out to get me. He said, I know this group's divided. Theologically, they are, di- they are divided. And a divided house won't stand. So he just throws it right out there. 
He says, oh, listen, hey, brothers, I'm a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in life after death. I believe in angels. I believe in, in, in spirit beings. He's, he's saying the exact thing. Boy, he's starting to raise the flag of the Pharisee clan. And you see, the Sadducees, they didn't, they only believed in the Pentateuch, everything else they scrapped. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in angels. See, that's why they were sad, you see. And, and so they, they were just, you know, they were party poopers theologically. But the Pharisees, they, they believed in resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in, so when Paul says, I believe, I believe in the resurrection and life after death and angels, uh, boy, that was all it took because the Pharisees all of a sudden, remember now, they were part of the crowd that wanted to get rid of him. All of a sudden they said, hey, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with this man. Maybe an angel did speak to him along the road. Maybe what he's saying is true. Hey, he's a good guy. We, <laughs> and so they start infighting. And Paul's off the hook. And the Roman commander said, I can't believe it. Here we are again. And so he commands the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him back to the barracks. And they're probably looking at Paul and saying, you are one more lucky dude. <laughs> by all rights, you should have been dead by now. I mean, we've never seen anybody survive mobs like you have survived and be in the hands of Roman brutal soldiers. And here you are, still alive. You are one more lucky dude. No, no. All you have to do is go back to Acts chapter 9 where Jesus encountered Paul on the road to Damascus, and Jesus had issued a call on the life of Paul. And this is what Ananias told Paul, that Jesus told him to tell him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Folks, Simply put, the Lord wasn't finished with Paul. He would be, he will be one day. He'll be finished with me one day. He'll be finished with you one day. And when that day comes, we'll get to leave this old planet saturated in sin and pain and disease and, 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 and horrible, uh, violence and, and disabilities and, uh, listen, but you don't leave this planet not one second before. The one who holds the calendar says, I'm finished. Mission accomplished. Come on home. They could threaten all they wanted to. They could have all the mobs and riots they wanted to. But Paul wasn't checking out till Jesus says, Come on home, soldier. Your mission is accomplished. Don't give up. Don't back off. Keep moving ahead. You stay the course. I say that to you collectively, corporately, as a congregation, as a body, a church. God's got a mission for Cornerstone. Oh, sure, we've gone through our times of fiery trials. We've gone through our hardships and storms. But let me tell you something. This ship ain't sinking. Pardon the English. Because we're on a mission. The captain of our ship is going to keep us moving forward till the day he says, mission accomplished, come on home.
Praise God. We serve a God who is absolutely sovereign and knows every one of us and loves us just like you love Paul.